Uh, good morning. Thank you, worship team and Charlie and for leading us in worshiping the Lord with all our hearts. It's good to see you this morning and it's my privilege to open up God's word with you this morning. We're going to continue our study of first things as we look at the book of Genesis. Now, Genesis means origin or source. It deals with beginnings. In Genesis, we have things like creation and the fall, the flood, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. In the New Testament, there are 165 passages that are either quoted or referenced from Genesis. And over 100 of these passages come from Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And here we find the answers to mankind's biggest questions. How did the universe and life come to exist? What is mankind's relationship to God and to creation? What is mankind's purpose? Now last week we looked at God's preeminence, His being first in all things. And today, creation. As I did last week, I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 1. And if you were here last week, you know that we stood for the reading of God's Word, and I'm uh, big on that. I'm committed to that because I, I, uh, I read it in the Bible, in Nehemiah chapter 8. And of course, I was reminded that there were other actions as well. But I want to ask you to stand with me as we read God's Word in Genesis 1. Now I thought, well, maybe we'll read a couple verses. Then I remember what Paul said to Timothy. Give yourself to the uh, public reading of Scripture. And so we're going to read all of chapter 1. And in case you're wondering if you should sit down right now, <laughs> I've got the Bible on CD. That, you know, I always keep that in my car. And I listened to this chapter a lot this week. And it's four and a half minutes long, at least the way the guy read it on the, on the CD. <laughs> Mine's only 30 minutes long. All right. Now, something else. As we come to Genesis, if you're anything like me, you may be tempted to think simple, know it, and check it off the list. Luther said this about Genesis. He said, I beg and faithfully warn every pious Christian not to stumble at the simplicity of the language and stories that will often meet him here. He should not not doubt that however simple they may seem, These are the very words, works, judgments, and deeds of the high majesty, power, and wisdom of God. So let's begin at verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning a second day. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, 
plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. There was evening, and there was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth, which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And may God bless his word today. Lord God, we pray that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word this day. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And please be seated. You've probably heard of the Scopes Monkey Trial. If you don't know about it, you know the name. It happened in July of 1925. It's probably the the best known trial in American history. But it's also one of the most misunderstood and misquoted I did a little research on this Scopes Monkey Trial this week and found conflicting views. And so I landed on two that seemed to go uh, close to one another, one from a source I trust, another from a source I think I trust. And so here's what I learned 
And just to give you a little background before that, in 1859, I believe, Darwin's Origin of the Species was written. Now, in his second book, a few years later, he said that man descended from animal, tailed animals, uh, quadrupeds. Now, in July 1925, in early ni- in 1925, in Tennessee, there was a man uh, by the last name of Butler who was in the legislature, and he put a, a law uh, to the legislature about not um, cre- uh, teaching anything but the creation account in the public schools. And the Tennessee legislature, six days later, approved this law, like 75 to 6. Well, then in, 19, in May of 1925, the, the New York City uh, branch of the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, put an ad in the Chattanooga paper in Tennessee, and they were looking for a public school teacher that was willing to be indicted for breaking the Butler Act in Tennessee. Now, as one of the stories go, the next day, the town leaders in Dayton, Tennessee, were reading this, and they hatched a plan to bring uh, more business to the town of Dayton. They found this, this school teacher. Actually, he was a, a high school football coach. His name was John Scopes. And he had, he, had, uh, he had only been in the classroom, I believe, for a couple weeks at the end of the semester to substitute. He didn't even know if he had even taught evolution. But he agreed to be indicted, and so he was indicted. And in July 1925, William Jennings Bryan, a, a believer, prosecuted the case. And Clarence Darrow uh, defended Scopes. Now, I'm going to have to... I just realized I should have checked all this with Jeff Lordson before I ever even <laughs> attempted to speak of this case. Three days into the trial... Darrow objects to opening the proceedings with prayer every day. The judge uh, says, learn to live with it, and they go on. Now, the trial only lasted like 10 or 11 days. But at one point, Clarence Darrow calls William Jennings Bryan, the prosecuting attorney, to take the stand as a biblical expert. And in a a moment of a momentary lapse of judgment, he agrees to take the stand. As long as Darrow would also take the stand after him so he could question him as well. Well, while he was on the stand, Darrow asked Brian if he believed uh, in the authority of scriptures and so on and so forth. He asked him if he knew how Cain got his wife. He asked him uh, if he believed in six literal days of creation and so on and so forth. At one point, Darrow uh, ridiculed Brian for holding ideas that no you know, rational human would believe. Now, as soon as Brian was off the stand, Darrow immediately asked for a guilty verdict for his client, therefore escaping uh, the, uh, the chance for Brian to, uh, to question him. The, the, uh, the court went out and in nine minutes came back with a guilty verdict, they charged him the minimum, $100. Brian, the prosecuting attorney, and the ACLU uh, offered to pay that fine. Now fast forward a few years to 1967. 
in Tennessee, they also put in a, uh, a law that says that equal time should be given to the teaching of creation as well as evolution. 1973, that law was repealed as unconstitutional. Fast forward to today. The debate still continues in public schools, uh, across our land, of how to teach origins. The origins of the human race. When it comes to the Genesis account of creation, we really have only two options. We either believe the word of God, or we don't. Believing in a supernatural, creative God who made everything, I believe, is the only rational explanation for the universe, as well as our life, our purpose, and our destiny. Now, you may wonder about this idea of speaking on creation. What with elevated terror alert levels, uh, wars raging, and everything we are dealing with in our own personal lives, it may seem somewhat irrelevant or disconnected to what's going on. But I assure you it's not. This study is important because understanding origins in the book of Genesis is foundational to understanding the rest of the Bible. What we believe about creation has implications all the way to the end of Scripture. With regard to the truthfulness of Scripture, with regard to the gospel, and with regard to the end of human history. Now it's critical to our thinking and it's critical to how we live our lives. Without a right understanding of origins, there is no way to comprehend ourselves or humanity as to the purpose of our existence. Now you may think, I know this already. This is simple. But you also may be confused because of conflicting teaching from sources you trust. You know, who's right, my parent or my teacher? Who's right, the church or the school? Science or the Bible? And if you're a junior higher or a high schooler or a college student in anything but a distinctly Christian institution, you are going to be indoctrinated as to evolution as if it were fact. And what you hear from the Bible is not going to jive with what you hear in the classroom. Now, the creation account in Genesis refutes every false philosophy. God created the heavens and the earth. And so it refutes atheism, which basically eliminates God and elevates and exalts mankind and concludes that mankind is the result of chance happenings. Since God is transcendent over all he created, it refutes pantheism, which says that the universe, nature, and God are all the same. Since the one true God created all things, it refutes polytheism which is belief in multiple gods. Since matter had a beginning, it refutes materialism, which says that the only thing that can truly be said to exist is matter itself. Since God was alone when he created, it refutes dualism, which basically says there are two rival gods, one good and one evil. And since God, not man, is the ultimate reality, it refutes humanism, which says that man is the beginning and the end of all things. Since God created all things, it refutes evolutionism, which, uh, like atheism, eliminates God, exalts man, and holds to the idea that nothing times nothing equals everything. Now, Henry Morris said this about all these philosophies, that they, that they really embrace each other. 
Dualism is basically a summary form of polytheism, which is the popular expression of pantheism, which presupposes materialism, which functions in the term of evolutionism, which finds its consummation in humanism, which culminates in atheism. Now, there there have been and there will be many foolish assertions regarding Genesis, motivated by intellectual pride, not by humility and awe before uh, our, our awesome God. Now, our foundation is God's word, inspired, inerrant, infallible, and the light to our paths. Now, as we look at the word of God in creation, with regard to creation today, three things stand out, the first of which is the priority of creation. So go to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In that first verse, the Bible simply and straightforwardly declares the world did not create itself or come about by chance. It was created by God, who is eternal, who's always been. And if you believe Genesis 1.1, you have no problem believing the rest of the Bible. The words of Genesis 1-1 are are awesome if you think about it. God says in verse 1 everything that could be said about creation. The statement is is precise. It's it's beyond what a human could compose. Now there was a scientist named Herbert Spencer. He died in 1903. And he made a discovery that all reality, all that can exist in the universe can really be contained in five um, categories. Time, force, action, space, and matter. And that nothing exists outside these categories. Now with that in mind, look at Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, that's time. God, that's force. Created, that's action. The heavens, that's space. And the earth, that's matter. In verse 1 of the Bible, God said what man didn't figure out until the 19th century. Everything that could be said about everything, God said in that one verse. The first verse in the Bible. A verse that, like John 3.16, we somewhat ignore often. Now let's take a closer look at these things. First of all, time. In the beginning. Uh, This first verse really invites us into the entire story. You could say that beginning uh, refers to the entire creation account, a summary, in a sense, of of the account of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then you've got the force, God. We saw last week this word Elohim, this plural word used uh, in a singular meaning, that God was in three persons before the beginning, preexistent, preeminent overall. And then you've got action, that God created that God used no pre-existing material when he created the universe. The Hebrew word bara is specific. It's, it's used only of God in scripture, and it means to create out of nothing, showing that God created the world out of nothing, not out of himself. God is separate from his creation. Unlike Eastern or pantheistic Uh, perceptions of God, the Bible teaches that the the universe could perish, yet God would remain. And then the space, space, the heavens. Uh, The Hebrew word here does not mean 
the stars of the heavens, if we say look into space and see the stars, it's really uh, in context this uh, space in general because the stars were created on day four. Then you've got matter, the earth. In verse two, we read that the earth was formless and void. The Hebrew words there is tohu and bohu. Tohu means to lie waste, to be without form, and bohu is to be empty, to be unfilled. That all the basic material elements were, in a sense, sustained in a watery matrix throughout the darkness of space. And in verse 2, it tells us the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And the picture we get there is this idea of a vibrant moving, a protective hovering. It pictures like a, a bird, like an eagle, uh, uh, hovering over its eaglets in a protective care, fluttering over the brood. You've also got the term the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the, this, this phrase, the heavens and the earth, really represents the entire earth, uh, the, the, um, organized earth where humans live. Every time it's used in the Old Testament, it's, it, this phrase functions as a compound, the heavens and the earth. Now next, we see the pattern of creation. We see this idea of, of uh, first of all, of announcement happening when God creates. Then God said. Now, ten times in chapter 1, we see, then God said, or, or God said, that God's direct speech drives the account. It forms the account. And in a sense, it's almost as if God is the soloist, the narrator is the accompanist. The hero of all creation is God himself. Absolutely. There's an announcement, then there's a commandment. Let there be. Nine times in this chapter, we see God saying, let there be, let there be this and that. God's word in conjunction with his spirit is, is irresistible. Let there be, and it was. Uh, in creation, uh, and it overcomes, in a sense, the emptiness that, that existed in when the earth was formless and void, when it was, um, when it was uh, formed but not yet filled. We see an allusion to this idea in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. God who said, let there be light, has also shined the light of the gospel in our lives that we can understand who Jesus is. Next, we see a separation, this idea of dividing day from night, water from land, uh, fish from the fowl, and so on and so forth. And it tells us that boundaries are important in creation, but also in the social order. That when things stay in their rightful place, all is well. The flip side of that is when things don't stay in their rightful place. Whether in creation or in social order, things are not well. Then there's a report. So God made... Uh, or the equivalent, uh, eight times in this chapter, and it affirms that everything existed by God's expressed will and purpose and word, that all things came into being by him. So God made. And then there's naming. And God called. He called. Now, he displays his sovereignty in naming the elements. You know, corporations pay millions of dollars for naming rights. In fact, the Arrowhead Pond will soon become the Honda Center. Got to get used to it. Same building, different name, different money. But God's governance of all things is seen in his prerogative 
to name what he has made. And then we see an evaluation, a blessing that God saw or God blessed after he did the creating of each piece of his handiwork. God saw that it was good. Everything satisfied his purpose. And then he blesses each creature with procreativity. Be fruitful. Good is repeated. And then in verse 31, he saw all that he had made. And behold, it was very good. His assessment is what matters. God's assessment. God's report card is what matters. And then we see the progress of creation. You see God forming the universe and then filling it. And we're going to put a little chart up here because what we see in the six days of creation are two corresponding triads, two groups of three. And first of all, you've got the idea of the the earth being formed in the first three days uh, versus being unformed and formless. And then in the last three days, being filled versus being unfilled or void. So day one, you have light. Day two, the firmament and the sky and the seas. Day three, dry land and vegetation. Day four, the lights, then that fill the expanse of light. And the inhabitants on day five, birds and fish. And then in day six, land animals and also human beings. Now you notice about creatures that they were made after their kind. You see that in verse 21 and 24 and 25. But basic to Genesis and to the Bible is the creation of humanity in the image of God. Look at verse 26. God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. So the use of the plural here, again, is consistent with the idea of God being in three persons. Uh, what we know as the Trinity, the triune God. And I want to just mention, make mention of three aspects of our being in the image of God. First of all, we have a personality, a distinct personality, and therefore we have knowledge and feelings and a will to choose and to decide. And this sets us apart from all animals and plants. We have, uh, secondly, morality. The idea that we can make moral judgments. And we have uh, a conscience. Most of us do, right? We have a conscience. Don't nudge the person next to you, please. And then we also have uh, spirituality. That we were made for communion with God. That we were made for a relationship with God. Now, we didn't read it, but I also want to say something about day seven. In chapter two. Look at chapter two. Verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their hosts. By the seventh day God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because he rest in it he rested from all his work which he had created and made. And unlike the other days of creation, The number of this day is given three times, which really shows its significance over the other days. You notice it's repeated three times there in the first three verses. Seventh day, seventh day, seventh day. 
And this idea that God uh, finished his uh, creation, that he had done what he set out to do, uh, this is a moment that stands apart from all creation. That God stopped creating and, and rested. And if you think about it, uh, it doesn't follow the same structure as the other six days. In, in the first six days, time um, is, uh, I mean, excuse me, uh, space is subdued. It is formed and filled. But on the seventh day, time is set apart. Time is sanctified. Tied, in a sense, time is made holy to God. It's a day blessed to refresh the earth. Uh, it calls us to imitate the pattern of work and rest of our Creator. And in so doing, to proclaim His Lordship over our lives and over His creation. Now I want to just give some concluding thoughts on creation. If you take a note, you may want to flip your page over. But there's three things that I want to point out. The first one really is seen quite obviously in this account of creation. That creation is initiated by God. That all things came into being through Him. Colossians 1.16 says, By Him all things were created. And that God creates out of nothing. Now, it's interesting to think about how God creates and how we create. When we say that we create something, what we really do is we fashion or make something out of pre-existing, you know, God-provided materials. Uh, I've got a good example of this. My, my little daughter, Ariana, my eight-year-old, my middle child. She can take broccoli or carrots or mashed potatoes or any other substance that can be either cut or shaped, formed, and make them into the most amazing creations. I mean, she can take a piece of broccoli and some carrots and make a whole city of people. And I'm not, I'm not, where's my family? Is that true? That is true. It was happening last night. It usually happens in the middle of dinner, and you're like, I'm going to eat your food, but you're also like, wow, that's amazing. How could you make that? The ultimate Play-Doh. Yeah, playing with food. But creativity is this God-given ability to make something of beauty, to make something that is intended to reflect His glory. Now, we don't always do that with our creative abilities. Now, the closest we come... Uh, to creating is in reproducing ourselves sexually. Uh, This may be one reason why Satan tries to pervert and destroy God's plan and standard for sexuality. It's connected to our being in the image of God. Let me ask you, have you fallen prey to any of Satan's schemes? Well, creation is initiated by God, but it's also sustained by God. In him, all things hold together. That everything, in a sense, and, and uh, excuse the simplicity of this, this idea, but everything in the entire universe is, is held together, every molecule, every atom, by, by God's glue. Do you know what this room would look like if it wasn't? And we, we'd be all over the place. It would be a mess, a complete mess. Are, look at your hand. It's held together by God. It stays in place by God. It, everything in all creation sustained by the Creator. 
Now, we read in Romans 11 that from him and through him and to him are all things. And that he upholds, we see in in the scriptures, all things by the word of his power. Now that you think about creation and evolutionism, and you think, what's the big issue? What's the real issue? I believe that the real issue is the authority of the word of God. I was very surprised this week as I studied this topic, how many writers and Christian leaders and commentators that I respect that don't hold to six literal 24-hour days of creation. And that's not the norm often among Christians. But the thing is, if you opened up your Bible and you just read your Bible, you're never going to come up with millions of years. You've got to go outside the Bible for that. I was reading people that I, that I respect and that I trust that were, well, were saying that very thing. Well, most scientists have disproved this or have shunned this idea of 24-hour literal days of creation. And they go with the scientists instead of with the Word of God. Now, in 1925, take William Jennings Bryan. He takes the stand. And in a sense, he walks right into Clarence Darrow's trap. Unknowingly. Because you know what happened? He gets on the stand and and Darrow says, so how did Cain get his wife? You see, we need to know how to answer that question from Scripture. And it can be answered from Scripture. He asked him, do you believe in in six literal days of creation? You know what Brian's answer was? Well, they could be longer terms of time. So So how long? He got him to say millions of years. At that point, Darrow knew he had won. He could call for a quick uh, guilty verdict because he was going to appeal the case. He knew he had won because he got a believer to, to, cut, to cut away at the authority of the, of the Word of God. What happened was Brian unknowingly and walked into this trap and weakened the Bible. In the eyes of countless people. He didn't know how to answer for his faith. He didn't know how to answer some of the simple questions. That skeptics will rise. Will raise. Now sadly many. In our day. In the church. Listen to destructive heresies. Listen to the. Have. Syncretized. In a sense. Uh. They're syncretistic in their faith. Well, we'll take a little bit of Bible and a little bit of this and a little bit of that and we'll come up with our worldview. And what you've got is oil and water that does not mix. We must ask ourselves, do we believe the word of God? Do we believe the word of God as it is written? Or have we mixed? Or do we prefer to mix man's wisdom with God's? You know, 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and for training in righteousness. Why? That we would be adequate, thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, Genesis 1, believing Genesis 1.1 affects you tomorrow morning when you go to your office. Believing Genesis 1.1 affects you when you go to school 
or when you're out on the soccer field, or wherever you are. A belief in the, in the, in the word of God. Let me close by saying the last part. Creation responds to God. Creation must respond to God. In Psalm 19, we read that the heavens are declaring the glory of God. The firmaments are telling of his handiwork. And in Psalm 148, we read that that creation, in a sense, shouts praise to God. That he commanded and they were created. And then in 2 Peter chapter 3, we read that there are mockers who will come, following after their own lusts, who will basically deny the creation and everything else. And ask, well, hey, since the creation of the world, all this has been going on, where's the promise of his coming? He's not coming back. Well, yes, he is. And he will. Some mock. Some deny him. Romans 1 tells us that God's invisible attributes, his divine nature, his eternal power, are clearly seen through what he has made. And that all that deny that are without excuse. All that deny him are without excuse. We know that some mock. We know that some deny him. And some are in rebellion against him. Many. But all owe allegiance to him. And we either accept his lordship or we reject it. We either give glory to God or we give glory to his creatures. To his creation. We will either worship and serve the creator or we will worship and serve the creature. So which are we doing? Which are you doing? What direction are you moving? See, the Genesis account shows a loving, all-knowing God who desires fellowship with his creation. The first man, Adam, had a perfect relationship with his creator. But he fell by disobeying God and sin and sinning. And Adam was the head of the human race so that when he fell, we fell too. And that we too were made for relationship with God, but we are born in sin with no hope of life in and of ourselves. And like creation, dependent upon an outside source. And the good news is that God made a way for us to be put into a right relationship with God. That he provided a way to deliver us. Another Adam. The Son of God took on human nature. In addition to his full deity. Excuse me, his full, in addition to his full deity. And he is called the last Adam. Because Jesus took the place of the first Adam. He became the new head. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. See, Christ came to earth and took the penalty for our sin. In our place, on the cross, so that all who put their trust in him would be reconciled to God. You see, the beginning points to the end. It points us to Jesus. Jesus himself in Revelation said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the maker. He is the Savior. Not all people are ready to meet their maker. And not all people acknowledge the Savior. The original creation was marred by sin, but the scriptures tell us in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation, a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. 
He transforms us. He calls into being that which did not exist. He makes us who were spiritually dead alive in Christ so that we could walk in newness of life. And I want to ask you, have you come to faith in Jesus Christ? And if not, today may be the day for you. Will you acknowledge him as your maker and as your savior by trusting him to save you from your sin? If you're worried about faith and how you're going to get it, don't worry. It's a gift of God. There is forgiveness in Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you and praise you that you are the God of all creation. We thank you and praise you, Lord, that you are good, that you are great, and that you are here with us. And Lord, thank you that you created the heavens and the earth. And thank you, Lord, that we look forward to a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to be close the service now. I realize it went a little long here. And I want to ask you to stand. And we're going to pray. Are we going to sing a song? Okay. We're going to pray. And I just want to ask you that if you, if you are in the place where you have come and said, you know, I want to acknowledge Jesus as my maker and as the Savior. I want to come to know Jesus. I'm going to ask you to come up front here at the end of the service when we're dismissed. And, and I'll, I'll be right here. I would love to talk with you. And also, I want to encourage you, too, that if you have not uh, professed Christ's lordship in your life publicly in believer's baptism, to think about doing that today uh, at Newport Dunes when we meet together. For our benediction, I am going to read uh, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 20. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you.